The teaching for this evening is based on the scripture reading from Genesis 2, 4 through 25. This is God's word. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, and the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedulam and Oxstone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, last week we started uh, a new series beginning in uh, the book of Genesis, and uh, we're going to pick up again uh, this evening with Genesis chapter 2, uh, the passage that we uh, was just read. And just to give you a little bit of, of background on, on Genesis, this is really uh, the first, what is often called the first of the five books of Moses. Uh, it is generally believed that Moses is at least the primary author of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And those five books really do shape everything that comes after for the rest of the Bible. And Moses, in writing these books, he's writing to God's people on their way to the promised land. So you need to imagine, as we look at this, like we did last week, I'll try to keep reminding us of this, but God's people have been in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. Now, if you're in slavery for that long, away from your home, chances are you're going to forget 
where you came from. You're going to have a hard time remembering the stories that give shape to your family, to your identity. And so this story, these books, are intended to remind us who are we really. And as I was thinking about particularly Genesis chapter 2, what came to mind pretty quickly was the the, the wide range, or actually the, the large number of restoration shows on TV these days. There's, um, you know, all the fixer-upper house shows, and there's especially all of the, the car shows. Um, and there was one show I can't remember, but he, he's this kind of gray-haired guy, wears denim, short sleeve, and he uh, restores, like, cool old Coca-Cola machines and really cool, like, retro things. And one of the things that comes out of all of those shows is trying to get back to the original. What was the original design? Or what were the original components that made this car run and made it so special and uh, significant? And as we come to Genesis chapter 2, that's, that's what we're going to look at tonight. How Genesis chapter 2 helps to uncover for us our original design, what God's original intention and design was for his creation and for us in particular as human beings created in in his image, male and female. And as we come to to Genesis chapter 2, a a key question emerges right away. All right, so here's the question that I want to try to resolve for you because um, this this may be something that, that... um, causes some difficulty for you. Are Genesis 1 and 2 describing the same creation event, or are they two separate ones? And what I want you to see is, is, is simply this. Genesis chapter 2 is this describing the same events, but like a telescope, it's focusing in and giving us much greater detail. How do we know that? Let me, let me show you before we, we start looking at this, because it's important for you to understand this in order to see why God spends so much time in Genesis 2 going back to the original design that he has and intends for, for us. If you look at verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, this is what I would call a hinge verse. It looks back to chapter 1. It echoes the very first verse of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Virtually the same thing is said here. It's a hinge verse. Now, when we get to then, we move to verse 5. What happens is, verses 5 through 25, they clearly describe events that were already mentioned in chapter 1. God had made dry land. And one of the things I want us to notice here is... How, which events here stand out and help us to understand that Genesis 2 is really describing the very same events from chapter 1? Look in verse 7. Verse 7 says, The Lord God formed the man. And then look down in verse 22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, what's happening here is exactly what we read in chapter 1, verse 27. 
that God created man, male and female. He created them. But it's focusing in. It's giving us more detail about how this happened. Another detail I want you to notice that helps us to understand that essentially chapter 2 is describing what God did on day 6 of chapter 1. If you notice in in chapter 1, remember from chapter 1, verse 28, at the end of day 6, what does God say? If you remember, God says, he saw everything that he made, and it was very good. But notice in verse 18 of chapter 2, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So here we've got God saying something that's not good about creation in chapter 2. But in chapter 1, day 6 ends with a very good. How do you get to very good? Well, God doesn't declare creation very good until both male and female are created. And these details, that what I, I'm just trying to show you a couple. We could get into some very detailed um, exegetical stuff that I just want to spare you that show us how Genesis 2 really is taking um, day 6 from chapter 1 and just unfolding it for us. Which, if you had all remember, if you were here last week, one of the main things I, I mentioned was how chapter 1, the climax of chapter 1, is day 6. It's all heading towards, the sequence of the days of creation are heading towards God's creation of man in his image, male and female. And chapter 2 begins to unfold that for us and describe it in more detail. And so here's what I want you to see. Um, That chapter 1, verse 27, gives us an overview. Chapter 2, verse 5 through 25, describe in greater detail these events of God creating us in in his image. And it unfolds for us his original design for us, for humanity and his intention for human flourishing. So we're going to see, I want to make just three points from this, that God provides a home, he provides direction, and he provides companionship. So the first part of God's original design is he provides a home. Notice in verse 5 and 6, says that there was no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For God had not caused it to rain on the land. And at this point, there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was coming up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And it's describing, here's the setting. Here are the conditions in which God creates man. In verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. So the first thing as we talk about God providing a home, notice what he does. How God is described here is the imagery is, is of a potter working with clay. God formed the man. And if my, my brother-in-law is a potter and up in New England and, and we have gone to visit him and it is a profound thing to watch somebody who can throw, pot, who can throw clay. That's the, I guess that's the cool way. I throw pots. I used to think that made, like, 
literally you throw it, but throwing clay just means forming it. And watching someone do that and craft with their hands to make out of this just clump of, of dust and clay something beautiful, that's the picture here. That out of the raw material of creation, God is fashioning this human being, bone and flesh and breathing life into him. And then he puts him in this garden that he had planted. In verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. He gives him a home. And what you need to also notice here is it's easy to miss this, that the word for man and ground or Adam and ground are incredibly close. In fact, the, the, the term for Adam can also be translated land or ground. That throughout this story, you get this impression that this is a very earthy religion. That creating man, male and female, we are, we are, we are very much connected to God's creation. And that's by design, though distinct from it. So here we have God provides a home. He creates man, puts him in the garden. And what does he do in verses 8 and 9? Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. He provides for him. God provides in this garden an abundance of food. And not just practical provision, but aesthetic provision when he says every tree that is pleasant to the sight this is a beautiful place it's a place you'd want to be it's a place you'd want to call home and it's full of everything that you would possibly need to flourish and to thrive in this world and I want you to pause here for just a moment and think about that because next week when we get to chapter 3 and things go downhill One of the things that we learn right here, things don't go downhill because God was stingy or God was holding out on Adam and Eve. No, things go south because we fail to see what has already been given. That's what we're being told here very subtly, but it comes through very loudly as we move through the story. It's not the lack of of need that's the issue. Rather, it's the failing to enjoy what God has provided. So God, he creates man, he provides for him, puts him in this garden, and and lastly, he gives him a purpose. He doesn't give him this garden to just sit there and, and drink sweet tea all day, as fun as that might be. He has a job. Notice in verse five, the reason that God had yet to cause things to grow was there was no man to work the ground. And then notice in verse 15, that God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. Now, I think for most of us, work is not enjoyable, and we'll see why next week. But that is not God's original design for work. Work is a good thing in and of itself. You were made for work. You were made to use your hands and your mind to be creative, to do glorious things, beautiful things. 
that according to the Bible here, work is a gift of God. It's part of what it means to be human. It gives dignity to who you are and purpose to your place in life. It's not something to be despised. So here we have this garden. It's man's home. It's the place where man is to live out his relationship with God. But the question is, how is he supposed to do that? And that brings us to the second point, that God provides direction. Look in verse 15 to 17. Again, God takes the man, puts him in the garden to work it and to keep it. And he says to the man, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, here God is telling the man what to do, what he can do, what he can't do. And this goes against the the grain of our modern uh, society. And it goes against the grain in this way. Almost always, when you hear the idea of freedom talked about in our day and time, what is meant by that is freedom from all constraints. Freedom to do whatever you want to do. That that's really true freedom. However, the Bible takes a very different view The Bible actually teaches that true freedom isn't the absence of constraint, but it's finding the constraints that fit your design. The classic example of this is fish and water. God designed fish with gills that can breathe in water and fins that enable them to move in water. You take them out of water, they cannot breathe and they cannot move. Where is a fish most fully free to be a fish? It's in the water. Where are we most fully free to be human? Well, it is in covenant relationship with God. It is in listening to what he has to say and enjoying what he has provided. That's what it means to live in relationship. The Bible calls that a covenant. And in the Bible, a covenant is simply a formal binding of two parties where both parties promise loyalty and promise to keep their commitments. There are promises of blessings in doing so and consequences for not doing so. And we see all of that here in verses 16 and 17. So to the direction that God gives us is simply this. Enjoy what I've given you Follow my instruction, and you will live. Enjoy what I've given you. Follow my instruction, and you will live. That's what verses 16 and 17 teach us, and that's actually what the whole Bible teaches about what it means to live in relationship with him. And yet, I do want to drill down a little bit for us, because what we do find in the, in the garden are these two trees, You see the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, what's very interesting here is when God says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. And then he says, but you may not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Notice he says nothing about eating the tree of life. Presumably, the tree of life is there for the taking. And yet, why does God here tell Adam 
not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does that tree really mean? Well, one of the ways we need to understand this is in chapter 3, verse 22. God himself says that humans have become like him, knowing good and evil. Now, I think I always have thought of the tree of knowledge of good and evil as a, as a, as a negative, bad thing. But to know good and evil, if that's something that God knows, it's not, I don't think we can say that's a bad thing. So what is the purpose? What kind of knowledge does this tree of knowledge of good and evil give us? How does it work in this relationship with God? Here's how it works. The tree of knowledge works in one of two ways. You can either come to know good and evil like God does by mastering temptation or by becoming enslaved to sin. That's how the the tree of knowledge of good and evil works in this story. So when God says to Adam, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it is an invitation to learn to become more like him to know and understand good and evil. The prohibition here is to learn that by mastering temptation, which we will read about next week. But we also read about next week because that's not what happens, that we come to know good and evil by becoming enslaved to it, enslaved to sin. C.S. Lewis describes it very much like this. In describing... um, This could apply to um, any number of situations, but the way he puts it, he says, those who are seriously attempting uh, to be sexually pure or chaste are more conscious and soon know a great deal more about their own sexuality than anyone else. I think you you could say the same if you ever have known someone who has um, struggled with addiction and has had to face real temptation on a daily basis that is incredibly intense, very heightened, and you talk to them about temptation and what they've learned about themselves, they will have a depth of understanding about their own weaknesses and their own need for help and their own maneuvers of their own heart that are incredibly profound, incredibly wise. That's mastering temptation. On the other hand, Lewis, somewhere later, he writes... He says, even attempted obedience brings light. Even just attempting to listen and follow God's instruction teaches you about yourself and your need for help. But then he says, indulgence brings fog. That becoming enslaved to sin doesn't make you any smarter it doesn't make it any clearer. In fact, it gets cloudier. And that's what the Bible calls self-deception. So here we have God's direction. What does he do? It's intended to bring enjoyment and light into your life. That's God's original design. So he gives a home. He provides direction. And then lastly, though, he provides companionship. How is Adam to enjoy God's provision and kindness here. Notice in verse 18, I mentioned this already, but we'll, we'll say it again. He says, God says, it is not good 
that the man should be alone. This is the first time and the only time in the creation account that God says not good. It's the only time. And what we are to, I think, get from this is that we are made for relationship. You were made to live life with other people. You were not made to live on your own. Now, the striking thing about that is you can have, you can be married, you can have lots of friends, and you can still live alone. And here what we have is God walking us into really the paradigm for what does companionship look like. And in particular, in this instance, in the beginning of the story, where God creates man, male and female, to to be fruitful and multiply and to have dominion over the earth. Notice what he says. He says, there was no helper found fit for him. And as if there's a pause, verses 19 through 20, it's not just that um, there might be somebody out there. Verses 19 and 20 tell us there was no one fit for Adam. And so God makes him a helper fit for him. And in fact, in creating woman, God fills, he, he fills out verse 27 of chapter 1. And the possibility of his image bearers carrying out their calling, which we talked about a little bit last week. And it's only then does God look on all he has made and say it's very good. Now what does he mean here by helper fit for him? Okay, the, the, the best, most sort of street-level way I can say this is a best friend. I mean, a best friend who compliments you, who fits you. And I want you to see here that when he says that God made out of Adam's rib, he fashioned and, and made it, the rib into a woman and brought her to, to the man. The man says... This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, this word helper, uh, you know, there are a lot of things we could talk about uh, from from this passage. But I just want to mention a few things. That this word helper, uh, I think, is sometimes either it's taught this way or even I think some, some women may and men may receive it this way that this word helper means inferior or weak. But what you need to know is that word helper here, it's used 19 times in the Old Testament. And 16 of those 19 times, it is used of God as the helper. So I think we need to be very clear that the helper fit for the man is not a, um, how to say it, that's not a lesser calling. The title, that this description, helper fit for the man, is one that's used of God himself for his people. And this, this idea here of fit for him also could mean is corresponding to him. She's his partner and counterpart and to only together can they make God's calling for humanity flourish. In other words, 
what's going on here in this passage is that the woman is man's partner in every dimension of life. In work, in conversation, in having a family, having children, cultivating what God has made. That's God's original design. But not only that, the gift of, of the woman to, to the man becomes the foundation of the covenant of marriage. Look in verse 24 and 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What do you see here? Here we have a principle that on the basis of God creating woman from the, the rib of the man, the therefore, verse 24 tells us that what follows is now true from that point on. Why do we have marriage in the first place? What does marriage actually mean? And, and I realize it's not lost on me that what we're looking at here cuts directly against the grain of a great deal of the current conversation in our culture today on marriage. And that's a little nerve-wracking as a pastor to say, not because I'm afraid to say it or I don't believe it. I just understand that it's controversial. But what I want you to hear very clearly is if we don't understand God's original design, we cannot make up a better version. The Bible is riddled of examples of men and women attempting to create their own paradise whether it be determining my own sexuality, determining my own uh, amount of wealth I need to be happy, determining how many children I need to have, who I need to get married to, where I need to live, creating your own paradise, and it ends in utter ruin. It will never work. God here gives us his original design not to, um, to squelch, but in order that we might flourish. And what do we see here? This union between the man and the woman in marriage, notice that it's exclusive. Verse 24, a man is to leave his father and his mother. It's permanent. Verse 24, he's to hold fast to her and her to him. It's a God-sealed bond. Verse 24 again, they shall become one flesh. While that is certainly true physically, it's not true just Physically, it's true emotionally, spiritually, financially. Everything is about becoming one flesh. And lastly, verse 25, it is a union of perfect ease. They are naked and not ashamed. Now, what you need to understand, that very last line reminds us who is this being written to. This is being written to people who know the experience of shame. And it's in that sense that while we are uh, far removed in time and culture from God's people as they're on their way to the promised land, we are no different than them in the experience of shame. It is a haunting experience. In fact, one writer describes shame like this. He says, Shame is felt as an inner torment, a sickness of the soul. 
It is the most poignant experience of the self by the self, a wound from the inside dividing us both from ourselves and from one another. You see, guilt and shame are two different things. You can do something wrong and be guilty for it and actually be forgiven and know you're forgiven and yet live with this inner sense of shame and ugliness and nakedness and exposure that you can't seem to get rid of. So what are we supposed to do? What's the so what? Well, here's the so what. Why do we need to look at and, and hone in on living in light of God's design even though we fall so far short of it? Well, first of all, it's because we need to be reminded that things right now are not how they're supposed to be. That's the first thing. But the second thing, it also pushes us to look for help outside of ourselves. And what I want you to see here is that without the gospel, our situation would be hopeless. But with the gospel, we see a way back to God's original design. You see, Jesus Christ came not just to tend and to work a garden. He came to make a whole new creation. He came to fulfill the calling that Adam and Eve were given and failed to do. Jesus came to get right what we get wrong. Remember that tree of the knowledge of good and evil stuff. Jesus came to master temptation for us. But he also came to suffer under the enslavement and the condemnation of sin. But then last, he came to be the true spouse. He came to be the true spouse to a blemished, ashamed, undesirable bride, his people, in order to cleanse her, to see her in splendor without spot or wrinkle so she might be holy and without blemish. That's what we learn in Ephesians chapter 5. How does he do that? How does he take your shame away? How does he begin to restore God's original design for who you were called to be? Well, he does it by giving himself up for his bride. And she's not beautiful. And that's why he has come. You see, the good news for you this evening is if you don't feel beautiful, if you feel exposed and ashamed and naked, you are in the right spot. Because we are learning about from this passage, the Bible is about a God who loves people who need to be cleansed, who need to be honored, who have made a total wreck of their life and cannot rescue themselves. You see, here's the good news, whether you are married or not. You see, to be in Christ means that we can now experience Jesus' exclusive, permanent, unbreakable love without shame. That really is possible. Do you know that? That to know Jesus means that you can be free from shame. I know that that is hard to believe, but I'm telling you, that's what this tells us. That's what the gospel 
tells us, because what we also learn in Hebrews chapter 2, he is not ashamed of you. Jesus Christ came for sinners. And if you belong to him, he is not ashamed of you. And if you're here this evening and you're listening in and you don't belong to him, and you are wrapped with shame and with guilt and you cannot shake it, there is one who will take that shame, that he will rescue you, he will cleanse you, and he will never forsake you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for not hiding from us, as is so tempting for us to do when we, are, um, we feel naked and exposed and ashamed. Thank you that you tell us what your original design is, uh, even though it is written to us who fall so far short of it. Father, we ask that through the gospel, through the good news of Jesus, through trusting in him, we would be able even now to experience and taste your original design for us and wait with patience for that great day when you will bring it all to its fullness, when we will get to walk up to the tree of life yet again through Jesus and experience the very promises that are laid out in this chapter. Would you please do that? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.